take your Bibles and stand with me if you're able and turn to Mark chapter 3. 1 through 12 will be our text this morning. I've entitled the sermon, The Sabbath Showdown. This is, this is where the line is getting drawn into the sand with Jesus and the religious elite. And it's not going to go well for them. Uh, so I, this is a great passage. I hope and trust the word of God will pierce our hearts today and encourage us. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Mark. He, that's Jesus, entered into the synagogue. And a man was there whose hand was withered. And they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. He said to the man with a withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath or to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to them, stretch out your hand. That said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately and began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Jesus withdrew, withdrew to the sea with his disciples. And a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and Udama, and beyond Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, and and a great number heard in all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should be standing ready for him because of the crowd, so that he would not be crowd, so they would not crowd him. For he had healed many, with the result that all those who had affliction pressed around him in order to touch him. And whenever unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. This is the reading of God's word. You may be sitting. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the plan that you laid down before the foundations of the world to send your own Son. God in human form to this world. And Lord, he just didn't immediately show up and go to the cross and die for us, but he lived this sinless life. He took false teaching and lies and took them head on and showed the truth. He proved that he had authority, proved he had power over all things, Lord. And then he set aside that and hung on a cross. And so, Lord, we thank you that you sent your Son. We would not be here today. Those who claim Christ as our Savior would be doing something else, Lord. We are here because your Son came and died for us, and your Word has revealed that to us. So we praise you for that, Lord. We pray that this message will go out boldly from this pulpit and from this ministry and from many other ministries in the area, that they would preach the sufficiency of Christ through the sufficiency of the Word. We pray for our missionaries scattered around the, the globe, Lord, uh, ones we support, ones we would like to support, many who proclaim this truth. Give them favor in their villages and towns and cities, Lord. This is the message man needs. And so we pray for them. Pray for those, Lord, that are not well today, who are even maybe watching now, 
Lord, give them strength. Help them to know they're loved and missed here. May they have strength to finish well for your glory. I do thank you for our children, Lord, as we think about Promotion Sunday and kids moving up different ages and in classes and both at school, home, and church, Lord. We thank you for them. They're truly a gift from the Lord, and we see our children as that. And may we, moms, dads, grandparents, aunts, uncles, may we be a part of that shepherding process to help point all of them towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray for a very good school year. Here in the academy, in our homes, Lord, that you would be glorified in all that we do, Lord. And we run this race. May we run this race chasing you, Lord Jesus. And when it's all done, as Hayward said already, may we enter in and hear those beautiful words because of Christ's work. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Lord, now hear your word preached. Take it, pierce hearts and minds, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite films is an old Western, 1952. Stay with me, young people. Um, it's called High Noon. Yeah, what a great, what a great movie. Um, you know the actors, uh, uh, Gary Cooper plays Will Kane, he's the sheriff. Um, Grace Kelly plays, I think, Amy Fowler is her name um, in the movie. Will Kane is this great sheriff and he has held up the law out in the West and he's in a little small uh, town, I think, based in New Mexico, dust-blown streets and all of that. And he's really set the law and he's done well. But a man who he put in prison, incarcerated, gets loose and gives him a death threat. Well, he had just married this Amy, remember this, and Amy says, look, um, I, I, she's a pacifist, she's a Quaker, I'm not into this, I'm leaving, you either come with me or we're done. And he, you know, she sets the scene. And, um, and he says, look, man, this badge, I'm I'm going to hold to it. She gets on the train. The clock's ticking all through the movie. The train pulls up. The bad guy gets off. She gets on. Clock keeps ticking. He can't get anybody to, to, to come and help him fight these bad guys that are ready to kill him. And, and in the end, the gunfight goes. She hears the shot. She runs off the, the train. She grabs a gun, shoots one of the bad guys. He gets the rest of them, and they all go home and fall in love. So, great, great old Western. <laughs> uh, one worth watching. Get on Netflix, you kids. Uh, high Noon, uh, Gary Cooper. Um, but there's a showdown, and that's the whole thing, is, is the whole movie's going down, and there's a showdown coming. They keep showing the clock. High Noon, High Noon. Well, I think we're seeing this in this text. In fact, out of all the confrontations that Jesus runs into, this one's especially important. Because it is here, right here, where they're going to now decide, we got to kill this guy. we got to get rid of him. And there's a showdown here, and Jesus is in the center of it, of course. And what a, what a blessing to watch him work as he speaks in truth. You know, there's showdowns in our lives all the time, isn't there? There's times where, where God gives us an opportunity to stand for him. And, and yet he reminds us, look, if I'm for you, who can be against you? You know those verses, right? Romans 8. If I'm for you, who can be against you? It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? <laughs> if God is on your side, who, who can stand against you? And, and so it's a reminder. And, and of course, the Lord Jesus Christ is God. He's, he's one with the Father and the Spirit. And here they are laying down their plan, and there is no one who can thwart him, though they try. 
Well, let's look at a couple of thoughts as we work our way down through this text. And, and if you have your Bibles, just jump into this text and watch this phrase by phrase, word by word, as this story unfolds. Luke, excuse me, Mark chapter 3. The corresponding texts are Luke 6 and Matthew 12, and I'll jump back and forth in those as we go. Notice in verse 1, he, Jesus, enters again into a synagogue, and a man was there with, whose hand was withered. Now, once again, Jesus enters a synagogue here, and the, the setting is, is, is for this showdown here. He knows this has all happened. Jesus knows all things. Matthew 12 and Luke 6 tell us another Sabbath. So it's different from this grain field incident we just spoke of last week at the end of 2. It's a different day. Notice the, the whole text starts off with very relative, I think all the translations are close, the word he. It's a personal pronoun referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to stop right there because this text is about Christ. It's not about anything else. That, it is about him. It is about his compassion. It's about his righteous anger. It's about his absolute authority. It's about his ability to do what is right, to draw people to himself. That's what this text is about. We will learn that over and over as we go through here. There are a few other subjects that are in the text, but Jesus holds the center here. One of those subjects is this man with a withered hand. It's an interesting phrase, one we probably wouldn't use today, politically correct-wise. Um, but the Bible says he has a withered hand. There's no other details. In fact, it's a, uh, what we call a perfect participle, meaning that something happened at a, at a particular time to his hand. So we don't think it's a birth defect. It's probably an injury or disease. So somewhere along his line, maybe it was a bricklayer, dropped a blood, I don't know. But something happened to this man, and his hand is withered and not useful. It's interesting, Luke chapter 6 says it's his right hand. Now, if you've ever been in the Middle East or India or some of those places like that, you do not touch people with your left hand. That's just no-no. They'll tell you that right away when you get over on missions and all of that. Your left hand is unclean, your right is a clean one. No matter if you're left-handed or right-handed. So think about the difficulties that this created in this ancient world for this man. First of all, loss of income, doubtlessly. Um, he is an outcast. You'll notice that he tells, Jesus tells him to come forward because he's probably in the back of the synagogue with all the other rejects. And he moves him forward in this. Notice verse 2. They were watching to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. They is the Pharisees. They're watching him. And the verb suggests this very close, intent, almost interrogation-like watching. You ever felt that from anybody? Somebody who's just got something like that is going to watch you and waiting for you to make a mistake. This is what Jesus was going through. And so it's high noon on the Sabbath. And the ground is the holy ground of the Sabbath. This is their home turf. This is where they rule and reign. Jesus has had the outside. He's had people out there. He's been doing things. But this is their turf. And now Jesus is in on it. And he's in the center of it. See, they knew his abilities to heal. There was no doubt they were there when he healed the paralytic and forgave his sins. They've seen him work. They knew he had compassion for suffering. And they knew people would be drawn to him. And so these cold-hearted religious leaders were expecting him to fall into their trap. They're just waiting for him to come into this. They were not concerned with this man's needs. It is, it is proper to stop and think, as we've noted, 
This man was suffering. He was suffering greatly. And these people had no concern of that. All their concern is that he's going to break our rules. And that's legalism. Legalism is completely devoid of compassion. It's my way or the highway. I really don't care what you're going through. Here's the standard I'm setting. If you don't meet it, then we're done. That's what legalism does. It's cold and pulls people away. But in the middle of this is a compassionate Savior. Notice their purpose here. See that so that at the end of the text in verse 2. That is this purpose statement. Here's why they were watching. Here's why they were seeing if he would break their rules, not the biblical rules, break their rules so they might accuse him. That's their whole goal. Bring formal charges to the Sanhedrin, these 70 men who have the spiritual oversight of the nation of Israel, who can condemn people to death. Their goal is to get Jesus before that. And we know in the end, as we watch, they will get Jesus there. And they will condemn him to death. Look at verse 3. He said to the man, all this is going on, Jesus knows this. He says to the man with a withered hand, get up and come forward. Now, Luke chapter 6, verse 6, says he did this after he finished teaching. So uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this account here. And so it's, it's important to understand he first came in the synagogue to do what? To preach. Because remember in Mark chapter 1, he says that's what he came to do, to preach the good news. So though the Bible doesn't often put all of his sermons in there, you need to know every time he gathers people, he preaches the word of God. He preaches the gospel of the good news. He did not want to be known as a healer. He came to ransom souls. And so chapter 6 of Luke reminds us that he came and he would, after this, after being, doing his preaching and teaching, he begins to handle the situation. Verse 8 of Luke chapter 6 also says this that Mark doesn't have in here. He says, he knew what they were thinking. <laughs> you're, you're, not me- you're, not, you're not messing with mere man here. This is one who knows all things. And in the middle of this scene, Jesus asked this man to stand and come forward. The idea of the original language is come from the back and stand in the middle. That's the idea there. He's in the back because his hand is withered and not normal, so he is unclean in some way, so he's pushed to the back. Jesus says, you, with a withered hand, come here. And he brings him right to the middle, right into the center of the scene. Matthew chapter 12, verse 10 says this, as soon as they saw Christ's intentions, the Pharisees ask an extra question. Look at this with me. Go to Matthew chapter 12, verse 10. We want to look at a couple of verses here. I love it when the story is in several different of the gospel accounts because you can get a little fuller look at this. Matthew chapter 10, verse 12. Notice as this man is brought forward, this man with his withered hand, Jesus and Mark brings him to the center. They begin to question Jesus. And look at this. They ask if it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. They ask a question. Mark doesn't record their question. Mark records them watching intently for him to break their traditions. But here, Matthew records that they did ask a question. So the man is in the center. Jesus Jesus has finished preaching. And the battleground is set. (laughs) There's a man standing there who needs compassion. And to show their lack of compassion, look what Jesus does. Stay in Matthew verse 11. And he said to them, to the Pharisees, What man is there among you? He's taking in everybody now, right? (laughs) Who has a sheep? 
And if it falls into a pit on a Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. How much more valuable then is a man than sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So clearly what they had done is they had elevated an animal over man. Jesus is exposing what legalism does is it robs you of compassion. I think there's also a good witness here to those who sometimes elevate animals above what God gave them to man for here. He goes, look, is not man greater? Is not man greater? And anytime we distort what God has set for us, we will lose compassion. We will lose compassion. And here... In the middle is this poor man, exhibit A, at the center of the room. Now Jesus is going to put on a a public display of their perverted Sabbath rules that they have laid down. Look at verse 4 back in Mark chapter 3. Flip back there with me. And he said to them, he's speaking now to the Pharisees. He must have asked several questions here. Is it lawful? Look at, the, look at the phrase of this. Mark 3 verse 4. Is it lawful to do good or do harm on the Sabbath? And then this little phrase. To save a life or to kill. But they kept silent. So now we have the omniscient Savior. He knows what they're thinking. He directs a counter question to expose their evil hearts here. And Jesus is showing that their failure to have even a desire to do good to this man reveals their evil heart. Notice he says to do good or to do harm. To do good or to do harm. But notice he goes a little farther. He says to save a life or kill. Now remember, he knows their thoughts. He knows what they're planning This second part of the question is going directly at their intentions, isn't it? And I think there's a couple of thoughts here. First, death. Well, you're thinking about not saving but killing here. I know what what you're up to. Death comes when you reject God's beneficiary kindness. That's what comes. The Bible says in Romans chapter 2 verse 4 that don't you know that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? See, they have rejected God's plan. They have written their own plan to get to God. Keep this, don't do that. 365 extra rules and traditions of how to get to God. And they have rejected the very kindness of God. That will always bring death. Second, death comes when you try to come to God any other way than Christ alone. Here, the standard of Sabbath. So you're going to get to God. This is their battleground. This is their home turf. You're going to get to God if you do everything right according to our rules, particularly here on this Sabbath. And Sabbath keeping. And then third, and here's what I think this last phrase is all about. I think this is a view to the cross. I think you're thinking about killing me. I think this is why Jesus says that. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm here, and they think in this section, he's speaking of the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, this, this sacred ground that you have added to my father's great statements. Or to save, and then he throws this in here, or to kill. Now, I don't think it's hard to look at this text and realize I don't think the man's dying. So we know he's not talking about that. He's talking about what they're planning to do To him. Now, Jesus knows the thoughts and even the intentions 
of the heart. In Genesis 6, verse 5, it tells us that every man's heart, even the intent of his thoughts and hearts, is continually evil. It's a great text before the flood, but it is truly a full teaching of the depravity of man. And Jesus knows all these things. He also knows thoughts from afar, Psalms uh, 139, verse 4. And so he's able to look in there. In verse 6, he's going to prove their thoughts and their hearts are wicked because he's going to tell them, you, you, you are doing this, you're planning. And they're going to go out and conspire with people to see the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice right at the end of verse 4, and I like this little phrase, but they kept silent. Nailed. <laughs> Nailed. What do you do with that? This man's reading our thoughts. And they miss it. They miss it completely. It's, it's, it's the same today. We'll sit with someone who has different plans of why they come to church or why they want religion. And, and you'll share the gospel with them and they miss it completely. This is true with these as well. They just keep silent. They don't get it. But their silence is condemning them. Second thought this morning. Jesus' compassion and righteous anger exposes sinful anger. Look with me at verse 5 and 6. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at, his, at, at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began, to conspire, began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. In verse 5, the, the commentary of chapter 6 of Luke says that after looking around at all of them, <laughs> can you imagine this? Here is the God of creation, the Lord of Sabbath, the Sabbath, the one who knows the very thoughts before they form them in their mind. He's gazing at the crowd <laughs> after this great question. And it's though Jesus vainly looks for a response and gets nothing. Only Mark records here that he was angered with this. None of the other writers record this. And here he says Jesus was angry. It's righteous indignation. Now, now remember, don't forget Jesus is fully man and fully God. So he is experiencing all the human emotions we experience. He does experience anger and joy. He experiences wrath and frustrations. He experiences all these things. And yet, yet because of his perfection he does this without sin so we may read this and go yeah i would be ticked off too well hold on most of the time our human anger is sin we throw this card every once in a while don't we you know the wife says well you're angry why that was righteous indignation and usually it's not usually we are sinners and we can't handle our anger but jesus handles it perfectly and his reaction to this vent when you think about it, in reaction to this, he always acts perfectly consistent with his sinless nature. So we, we see Jesus in his love and mercy, but we also see his wrath and justice and holiness. But there's this holy harmony of character as Jesus responds to everything within that. So though there is anger here, there is also mixed with love and mercy. Though there is justice and holiness here, he is also mixed with compassion. And so he always responds to every circumstance perfectly. In fact, 
Um, I, I think one of the biggest problems in the American church today is that his love has been elevated over his other qualities, over his other characteristics. So if his love is his greatest characteristics, then he is deficient in others, thus not being God. So we must talk about his anger at times, his wrath, his holiness, his justice, because he is perfect in all of those things. I love the book of Mark. The more I read it, I read it over and over and over as I'm studying each lesson. You see a lot of the emotions of Christ comes out of him. And I think Mark denotes that because the focus is on the Son of Man. Here we see his anger and, and his grief. His, he's grieved with man's evil heart. Chapter 6, verse 6, we see him with wonder and astonishment at their unbelief. Almost like, man, I can't believe how, how you're so unbelieving. We'll see, we'll, we'll see that when we get to that. Chapter 8, verse 12, this is a fascinating one. He takes this deep sigh within his spirit over those who are wanting signs. It's very graphic. We'll see it when we get there. This deep, oh, they're so lost. <laughs> and it's great emotion that floods out of him. Chapter 10, verse 14, he shows great discontent. In fact, he uses the word indignation towards his disciples who try to stop children from coming to him. And he shows, hey, let the children come unto me. Chapter 10, verse 12, this is a fascinating expression of his emotions. The Bible says he has a deep love for the rich young ruler who rejects him. The Bible says he has a deep love for one who rejects him. It's an amazing, amazing statement of his emotions. Chapter 14 and, and into the cross, you begin to get into great grief. Great, the Bible says deep sorrow as he's in the garden contemplating what God has for him. The point is, what we see is our, our Savior is both God and man. He experiences all the things we experience. And that's why Hebrews 4 says things like this, For we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, one who represents you and I. The high priest brought your sacrifice in before God the Father. We don't have one who has not sympathized with us, is what Hebrews 4.15 is saying. So Jesus, our representative, one who is fully man but fully God, can walk into the throne room of God, represent us because he became like his brethren, and he has sympathized with you and I for all that we've been through. Why don't you go to him? You struggling with depression? You struggling with sorrow? You struggling with guilt? You struggling with all these emotions that we as humans fall into? Why not go to the one? Who knows this? And I, and I love passages like this because they remind us that he dressed himself in humanity, experienced all that we go through so he could represent you and I. There is no way, brothers and sisters, you could ever say Jesus doesn't understand. And the Bible proves that to us. And these little passages here where you see his righteous indignation remind us of how glorious our Savior is. Notice, we begin to see that Jesus looks upon these men. He looks upon them and he sees these men who have distorted his word. They're deceiving the people and he's angry without sin. I, I, as I studied that this week, I, I thought about, I wonder what that look looked like. I mean, I know the look of my dad. I think my boys know my look. We all have that look. What did that look like? The, a righteous, perfect look as he gazed. You know, there's a couple other times this happens. One particular stood out in my mind as I was thinking about this. 
Remember when Peter denies the Lord and on the third time, Luke chapter 22, right around 60, 61, somewhere in there, the Bible says that Jesus looked at him. I've always wondered what that would have been like. He calls down wrath from God. He calls down curses from heaven that he does not know him. By the time that falls out of his mouth, the rooster crows and Jesus is in some room at a window where he's beaten to to a pulp, looks at him perfectly. And Peter goes out and weeps and repents. Jesus looked at these people and what they do? Went out and conspired to kill him. Complete different view of how Jesus looks. And we see that today. We see that today over and over. And so the sentence structure here teaches that his his anger was not long. He looked at them. And then what the sentence structure does is turns us to this great grief over the hardness of their hearts comes upon them. It's a compound verb, so it has this prolonged period of deep grief. It almost shows that there's a thought process going through the Lord as he thinks about all that took place here. Israel's rejection. Shepherds that devour the sheep uh, spoke about in the book of Ezekiel. Maybe he's contemplating his deep grief comes over. All that God did you. I made you a nation out of, out of no one. I pulled you out of Egypt. I gave you a land. Maybe he's contemplating all that God had done for this nation. And here he is sitting in the, on the Sabbath in a synagogue. And there's these people with full hatred towards him. And his heart is grieved. His heart is grieved at their hardness. The word heart is, notice it in the Bible, look at it here, I want you to see this in verse 5. We would probably write it this way, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. We would probably put a plural there. It's singular. And so he sees them as a group. He's particularly looking at these Pharisees, these religious rulers. He sees this is the condition of you together. Together you have denied me, you have denied my father, and your hearts are hard. He can see all of this as plain as day. Look at the last part of chapter 5. And he said to the man, right in the middle of this, stretch out your hand. Remember, the guy's still standing there. And he stretched it out and the hand was restored. In response to all these hard hearts and their own righteous emotions, he heals this man. What a vivid scene of the God-man in control of his emotions, in control of the will of God. I mean, just think for a moment, if you had that power to no thoughts and no hearts, what would you have done? I'd go, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead. You can come with me. <laughs> That's what we would do, wouldn't we? He's right in the middle of all this scene, knowing that they're going to walk out in moments to conspire for his death. And what does he do? Turns from that scene and says, I'm going to heal this man. And he shows complete compassion on him. And that's where the scene shifts. All of a sudden, now it comes back to exhibit A. (laughs) This man with a withered hand standing in the middle of the room. And at the command of Jesus, the man stretches out his hands, marking his obedience. And all eyes now turn to the, the center of the synagogue. They're all fixed on the man's hand. And instantaneously, with complete restoration, he's healed. And Jesus is acting out of his own will, at his own volition. Boom, done. What an amazing thing. And think about this. Here's what they're mad at him. He doesn't touch the man. 
He doesn't use any external means. He doesn't get up and put mud on them or wave something over them or nothing. It seems as though Jesus doesn't even move. And the healing did not even have the appearance of work. Nothing from even their unbiblical traditions was violated, and certainly nothing from the Mosaic law. It was just pure compassion, and they were mad. So he didn't break their extra-biblical laws, which were not biblical laws, and they still wanted him dead. This is where legalism takes you. And this, brothers and sisters, is an unmistakable supernatural work of an all-powerful, all-loving God to this man. And what proof, what more proof than you need that this is not a mere man? Can you just see that scene where a hand that is, I can't even imagine describe it, but it's not normal, just, and he's in the center of the room and boom. I think I would have said, you know what, I'm not going to fight this fight. <laughs> We're in over our head, guys. <laughs> no, not hard-heartedness. And remember what Jesus is doing. He's showing he has authority. So they'll listen to the real message. He's not there to be a healer. He's a son of man who's come not to be served, but to serve. And the way he served was to show them that he is going to be a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. That's the goal. So every healing, every compassionate uh, experience that people saw under him, every demon cast out was all to show that he could save them from their sins. And yet, what is the world of religion done with Jesus? It's all about healing. It's all about that. And the gospel is buried in that. That was not Jesus. And we'll even see at the end, he did not want those things spoken of. Notice in verse 6, though, Pharisees respond to this. They went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him and how they might destroy him. So the Pharisees depart the synagogue, a place they had ownership of um, when it comes to authority, and now Jesus is in the middle of it and they're leaving. And they have suffered yet another humiliation at this Sabbath showdown. And Jesus comes out on top. But there's a stark difference here. Look back at, look forward at uh, Luke chapter 6. You've got to see this account here. What happens? I want to show you a, just a tremendous difference between these Pharisees and the Lord Jesus Christ. Where Jesus controlled his emotions, these men could not. Notice the verse, Luke chapter 6, verse 11, it says this, but they themselves, the double pronoun here pointing directly at these Pharisees, wants to identify this group. But they themselves, look at this, were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Plepleme is the word. Um, it means to literally be gripped by anger. So here's Jesus who is angry with what they're doing to his people. Here's the Pharisees absolutely out of control. Their anger is absolute sinful. In fact, they're going to say, here's what we're going to do. We're, we're these people who say, look, don't break the Sabbath, but we can conspire to murder. <laughs> That's how far legalism can take you. That's how far away from the things of God that it will do. And they're enraged with this. They're enraged with this. This, this sins, these 
furious Pharisees to the Herodians. Now, you've got to know what they're doing here. This is, this is now, they're, they're gone to dirty warfare here. The Pharisees were, were not interested in the Herodians at all. In fact, it's, they've never been allies with them. You have to understand these guys. The Herodians were a political group that cared little for religion. They were about politics. They were strong supporters of Herod the Great, and therefore they were friends with Rome. They were secular Jews loyal to the Greco-Roman world order. They believed that Rome was going to rule the world, and they wanted a piece of it. They had nothing to do with Israel's religious system, and they were considered traitors. The Pharisees and Herodians typically hated each other. It would be like Republicans and Democrats joining forces to kill a candidate in our country. Maybe, yeah, we won't go down that road very far. (laughs) These guys don't like each other. But when your goal is to kill because your hearts are hard, you will join with anyone. So the Pharisees hated Jesus because he revealed their hypocrisy and the Herodians hated Jesus because he was stealing their popularity with the average people. And they were a threat to the power with Rome. And so, the Pharisees, with their anger, they compromised their own beliefs. They joined forces with their archenemy to do away with Jesus. They said, look, let's go figure out how to destroy him. Well, we know what that was. What did they do? They went to Rome. They went to crucifixion. That was Rome's tool. And doubtlessly here, though the Bible does not tell us, it is not hard to understand that they have joined forces with people who love Roman warfare, love Roman strategy. In the end, Jesus is hung on a Roman cross and murdered. This all comes down to how someone gets saved. They held that the Sabbath was sacred. That you don't do anything. In fact, the Mosaic law was not enough. We need to add to it. If you want to get to God, you've got to come with our rules. Jesus comes along and says, you want to get to God? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets there. Look at Hebrews chapter 4 with me. I ran out of time last week, and I just wanted to show you this text because the Sabbath is not something the New Testament church keeps in order to come to God. And we said this last week, the Sabbath is, is every day for a believer. Every day is the Lord's day for us. I want to just show you just a couple of verses here that help remind us of this. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9. The Bible says, So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There's a rest. Well, what is it? Verse 10, For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did. You rest from your works of trying to please God. A believer comes to Christ, he enters into a Sabbath rest, meaning he enters into resting with God. So every day, tomorrow morning, is the Lord's day for a believer. Wednesday afternoon, when you're tired and you're kind of on that hump day, that's the Lord's day. Every day is a a Sabbath rest for a believer. We rest in Christ. But they had marked this as the way to God. And because they have held what God did not teach, they became in direct contradiction with the Lord Jesus Christ. Back to our text in Mark 3, our third point, Jesus retreats to his turf in the ministry of teaching and compassion. Jesus retreats to his turf 
in the ministry of teaching and compassion. Remember last week um, I said this, that most of Jesus' recorded ministry is outside. Most of it. We see every once in a while he's in a synagogue or he's went in to overturn tables there or something like that. But most of it, um, he is outside. And so the Lord Jesus here in the text retreats to his turf, which is down by the sea. And it's interesting, we see Jesus speak, John records this much. Often John, John will record Jesus saying, it is not my time yet. My time of departure has not come. He uses those words. So there was nothing they could do to him because Jesus knew there was a time for him to lay down his life. But in order to protect his people, he retreats. Look at verse 7. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. He's taking them. He's protecting them. This is what he does. And, and Matthew 12, 15 says Jesus was aware of this. He knew that they were going to go conspire with the Herodians. So we withdrew from there and many followed him and he healed all of them. So this omniscient Savior knows they're plotting now think about this. He acts in prudence, redraws to open air where, he's, where he can be protected. He teaches and shows compassions and heals, and he protects his people from ambush in those narrow streets. Remember, he's in Capernaum, narrow streets. Man, they could jump out, whack him, all be done. Jesus pulls out of that, takes the people with him, goes back down by the sea where he can teach them. And there he takes his disciples with him. That little phrase, with his disciples, I think it's physical, meaning his disciples were with him. But here's some of my thoughts. I think they're marked now. I think they're, they're, they're with you. And we know this because, remember Peter, back in that same courtyard, the little girl says, weren't you one of them? Haven't we seen you with him? <laughs> this is the point where things are getting tough. You're going to follow me? You're going to follow me when they come with torches, when they come to take me away? Will you follow me? And so I think they're marked here. Notice seven, the latter part of verse 7. And a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea. So Galilee would be that Capernaum area and all that surrounding area. Judea would be south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, of course, all those people there. Udea, Udeme, Udume is, the, uh, is a town that was south of Judea. Then beyond Jordan would be Pura, that's his east and working its way to eventually to where Persia would be. Vicinity is a Tyre and Sidon. These are all um, way up by the Gulf, by the Sea of Galilee, northeast of that. Here's the point. Their fear was happening. They were afraid he was going to draw all people to himself, and that's exactly what's going to happen. And Mark does such a good job noting that all of these people are coming to him. They're gathering to hear Jesus, to be healed by him, to see his compassion. Notice verse 10, for he had healed many of them with the result that all of those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Do you remember the scene of the woman just believing if she could just touch him? Could you imagine this? They are pressing in on him. And so he says, hey, guys, get a boat ready. Isn't it cool in this verse? Get a boat ready. The crowd is pushing on me. I need to be able to get away in verse 9 so I can stand in this boat. And we see him do this several times throughout his ministry. And then finally, verse 11, we see these unclean spirits. They see him. It's this instant recognition. Why? Well, one, he created them. Two, they were in heaven with him at one time. Three, they know exactly who he is. 
And unlike the Pharisees and all the, most of the people, they know he's the Son of God. And so whenever he came in contact and he could see this scene, these masses from all over Israel are now gathering and following the Lord Jesus Christ. And here comes these evil spirits, these demonic forces crying out, you are the Son of God. You're the Son of God, the rightful owner of all things. You're equal with the Father is what they're saying. And yet Jesus, clearly in verse 12, says, we will not spread my glory through wickedness. We will not spread my glory through wickedness. And even in the, the parallel text, Matthew and Luke, this is not recorded about um, the dem demonic forces there. And he says the same words because I believe it's also attached to his healer. He told people not to tell that he healed. Why? He did not want to be known as a healer. He wants to be known as the Savior. And that's why we must be careful with some of our charismatic friends that get so lost in some of those things. He's a Savior. You'd much rather die of your affliction and know the Lord Jesus Christ than anything else. We give the message of Jesus. Yes, do we believe God heals? Absolutely. But He heals the heart. You can die perfectly healthiest of no diseases, of just old age, and go to hell. And here Jesus wants to be known as one who ransoms souls, brings them to His Father. Well, last thought, I wanted to give just some thoughts through this. Um, I wrote in our fourth statement, fear God, fight legalism. Fear God and fight legalism. God has got a wrath. You can't get around it. You see it today in this text right here, Jesus is angry. And you gotta, you gotta understand, he is holy and perfect and that anger could just blink he could call, you know, ten legions of angels on the cross. I mean, he has incredible authority. He spoke creation to existence. He holds all things together by his word. And so God is holy. And here's the point. We are not. That's where legalism takes a different route. We forget that we're not holy outside of Jesus Christ. Left to ourselves, we are despicable. <laughs> we are dead in our sins. We are completely deprived. We have no life within us. We are not holy, but He is. And this is what His wrath is connected to. I mean, I, I went back and just read, because I, sometimes I like to just see God in, in a passage that just helps me remind me of who He is. I read back and read Isaiah chapter 6, and do you know what? I, I, I just hadn't pointed it out before, and I said, Wow, the angels hide their face from him. <laughs> that fear awe, and awe, fear came over me for a moment. Here are these elect angels, sinless angels that are there before the throne, and they hide their face from him. This is power, this is authority. This is a name that should never fall off our lips as some swear word or vow that is untaken and not kept. This is a holy, holy God. And legalism comes when we are not fearful of Him. When we are more concerned about our own holiness and everybody else to line up underneath that. 
think we have to remind ourselves who we're dealing with. And as I went back to the scene and I thought about this scene and I could see Jesus in the Sabbath teaching, pouring out the gospel to these people, bringing a man to the center of it. Here's the holy creator God with all authority standing in their midst and we want to figure out how to kill him. This is where man goes. He is a God of wrath. And it surprises people sometimes when we speak of this because they've, as we said earlier, they elevate God's love over everything else. And yes, yes, please hear me. Don't go away and God says, God's not a God of love. God is a God of love. We don't know love outside of Him. But He mingles in great harmony His characteristics to be who He is. And we tremble at that because you and I cannot mingle anger and love together. We always go one way or the other, mostly the wrong way. But he does. And so we should fear God. There's times where he speaks in the Old Testament, and he says stuff like this to Moses about this rebellious people. He says, I have seen this people. Behold, they're obstinate people. Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them. And we know that text. He's not changing his mind. He's testing Moses. But you see that powerful anger come out of him. This wrath at times. Romans chapter 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Does that verse not fit that text? They were suppressing the truth of God's true law into their own standards of righteousness. And God's wrath pours out against that. And it was pouring out that day. Listen to this great verse, John 3, 36, last verse in the text. He, in, in John chapter 3, he who believes in the Son of God has eternal life. Is that not compassion? Those who are dead in their sins, those who believe in Jesus, he gives you eternal life. Sinners, undeserving of it, he gives eternal life. The verse goes on, but he who does not obey the Son. Obey the Son. He is your Lord or He's your judge. Because the verse goes on, they will not see life, but the wrath of God, and here's the words, a Greek word, a minnow, abides, remains on them. See, one of the things that keeps us from being legalists is we go, we go God, you are holy and I am not. You separate sheep and goats. You know who's with you and who's not. You, you judge eternally and give eternal life. You have the ability to do that. I bow my knee to you. That'll keep you out of legalism. That'll keep you out of worrying about everybody else's problems when you think about how great of God he is and how compassionate he is to us sinners. That keeps you out of legalism. First John chapter 4, this is love. Want to talk about his love? Not that we loved God, because you didn't. You didn't. I, I know it's hard for some people. They're going, no, no, I loved him. I, I walked the aisle. I prayed the prayer. I raised the hand. I did all that. You wouldn't have done that on your own. He loved you first. That he, that he would send his son. He demonstrated that he would send his son to be a propitiation, meaning he would satisfy the father's wrath. And now we're his children. You know, God's not mad at you. If you're a child of God, he's not mad at you. Get that out of your head. We all struggle with that at times. Well, God's mad at me. He doesn't bless my business. He, he is not mad at you. His son appeased that. 
We have a beautiful, right relationship. We sit at the table, spiritually speaking now, and physically one day with him. This is how you fight legalism. Don't forget our position. Say, well, how do people get here? Well, reject God's word. Don't have compassion. Misuse the means of grace, church, spiritual disciplines. Put duties upon others. Always try to fight battles and fix everything. You'll become a legalist real quick. Make Christ the center of stuff. It'll break your heart every time. And you'll have compassion for people. You'll see someone who's struggling, and maybe they are in sin. Maybe they have chosen a worldly path. You'll have compassion on them instead of condemning them. And yes, we deal with sin. We are a church who does church discipline here. We know that's the hardest thing we do as elders. most difficult thing is to church discipline someone. We do it because Christ tells us to do it. But it's done with compassion. It's done with begging to bring people to repentance. Instead of, well, we got it right, you don't. Oh, love Jesus. This text is about Christ. It's about his authority and who he is. And they're just seeking to kill him. And you know what? He lets them. So he can save you and I. Isn't that amazing? He lets them kill him. So he can save you and I. Showdown on the Sabbath. Jesus wins. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you that no one could come up against him. He was right in everything he did because he's God, he's perfect in all of his ways, and yet he dresses himself in humanity, he experiences emotions, he's angered and, and grieved, he's hurt and disappointed over and over throughout his earthly ministry, and yet it does not, it does not stop him from fulfilling your will, Father, to go to the cross and die for sinners. And even some of the last words we have of the Lord Jesus Christ is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then he says those perfect words, it is finished. He provides everything we need. And so we now, Lord, don't have to be legalists. We don't have to add rules. We can just put our faith in Christ and in his word and live lives, new creation, new life. Walk with him daily, Lord. Fight battles. Ask forgiveness for sin. Walk with him in a way um, by his strength, by the spirit that resides within us that brings him glory, Lord. And we don't have to go around measuring everyone else. Lord, give us compassion for one another because Jesus was compassionate for us. Lord, please, strengthen this church to be a continual church that shows compassion with gospel integrity in everything we do, Lord. May your word go forth around the world based on those truths, Lord. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.